Good morning again. Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6? And if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one and under the chairs in front of you. You can find Matthew 6 on page 787. I'll read there in a minute. Last Sunday, we started the sermon series called The Lord's Prayer and Praise. And one of the things we were careful to note is that that could be misleading into into, um, leading us to think that there's part one and part two to this series, Um, but they go hand in hand. There's no such thing as biblical prayer that lacks the element of praise. Another thing we talked about last week uh, was that Luke's gospel gives us the context for the Lord's Prayer. The disciples say to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And he provides them with this answer. That's one of the most important requests we could bring to God as a church, as followers of Christ. It's not, Lord, teach us to budget. It's not, Lord, teach us how to run program, how to fill ministry calendars. It's not even, Lord, teach us how to go on mission. The disciples are after this dynamic that connects their hearts intimately with the heart of their Creator. And there's no greater request that they could make of Jesus. And so, of course, in response, He gives to them and He gives to us. Not a formula for prayer, but a a pattern to follow to shape our prayers. Let's read again. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to pray. As we look at these phrases from the Lord's Prayer, enable us to grow in our understanding of something that may be very familiar, but make it fresh. Drive it deeply to the depths of our being and change us from the inside out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll start with talking about proper priorities to walk through this phrase. Prayer is not about you. It might seem like an obvious and unnecessary, simple thing to say, But uh, the way we pray, the attitude that we tend to have towards prayer suggests that we need that simple reminder on a regular basis. Shift mental gears with me. Let's go to ShopRite, okay? At the deli counter, the first thing you do when you go to the deli counter is you, you grab a ticket from the round red wheel, and that gives you a number. And then you look at your shopping list, you find out what's on sale, You might roll your eyes at the people in front of you who take their cold cuts way too seriously. And and when it's your turn, the number pops up. Maybe the person calls out your number. You give your order. You grab your packages. You get on with your shopping. If you're at work and your computer isn't functioning the way it's supposed to or you can't get access to the network or, or if your smartphone's on the blitz, you call tech support. And the phrase that uh, tech support uses is that you, you, you submit a ticket. Uh, the problem is generally described. It gets to the right person, and it gets you in line. And when it's your turn, 
the person understands specifically what's going on and hopefully addresses your problem and provides the solution. The way we tend to pray makes it seem like we're at the deli counter or we're calling customer service. And when we don't get what we want from God, how often do we have this kind of attitude? What do you mean you're out of roast beef? <laughs> it's on sale. Or, or we tend to have this attitude in prayer, uh, feeling like we walked into the neighborhood store where there's a simple counter and a little bell on, on the counter. Ring for service. Ding, 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 ding. And no one is coming out from the back room to provide service. There's no answer. Isn't that so often one of the attitudes that we have towards prayer? God is not listening or God's not providing, quote-unquote, the service that we expect. Prayer is not about us. It's not about our little needs. It's not about our customer order requests. Prayer is about God, and Jesus directs us heavenward at the beginning of this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We'll talk about that term in a few minutes. Hallowed be your name. The next two petitions are also Godward. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. There are six requests throughout this prayer. The first three Half of the requests are Godward. It is about you, God. We are affirming when we pray these um, prayers in this order. Praise to start, numbers 1, 2, and 3. Um, petition, secondly, which is oriented uh, on the, the circumstances around our lives, the world around us. And then confession, lastly, which focuses on what's inside of us. And so here's the flow. Praise orients our heart towards God. Petition orients ourselves at our world. Confession orients ourselves uh, on what's inside. Praise is the only thing that makes sense of what's going on outside of your world. And praise is the only thing that makes sense of what's going on inside of your heart. A proper order to communicating, though, is not limited to prayer. If uh, you're older than 30 or so, you remember that ancient practice of picking up the home phone to call people. I've already lost a few of you. you know, using a phone to make a call, to talk to people. Reach out and touch someone. That was the tagline that I grew up with, AT&T. Um, our only other communication back then were smoke signals and tin cans with strings. But we, we picked up the phone to call our neighbor. And there was a certain protocol. There, there was a, a proper priority given to what you said on the telephone. So when I called down the street, I didn't listen to Mrs. Cover say sweetly, hello, and then say, is Rob home? My dad would have had me for dinner if I had been that rude, raw. No, there's a proper priority. Um, because when you picked up the phone to call your buddy, you had to expect that um, it was, there was a good chance that the mom or the dad, an adult, would pick up the phone and you have to engage in proper communication. Hi, Mrs. Cover. It's Peter. How are you? Good. How you doing? Good. And, and since a 10-year-old kid isn't expected to have that much more discourse with the adult, I could get to the point. Is Rob home? Can he come over to play? Proper priority. Yes, as we saw last week, praying our Father gives us this amazing access to the very presence of the Creator of the universe, and we have open invitation 
as family members, our Father, to draw close to Him. But at the same time, there's a proper way to approach the King, and it involves hallowing His name. Secondly, holiness. Hallow, hallowed be thy name. It's a word that sounds strange to our ears, modern ears, unless it's the first part of a word that we know very well, Halloween. And and the sense of Halloween is rooted in what we're talking about this morning. Halloween is on October 31st. We all know that. It's the evening before All Hallows Day, which in the Roman Catholic tradition, even to this day, November 1st is All Saints Day, Um, the, the holy ones of God called out by Him. And so, All Hallows' Evening is shortened to Halloween. It's an unfamiliar word in a very familiar prayer. And uh, we touched on this last week. Uh, Some people would say, well, pull it out, use a modern term. But I think there's actually something very appropriate in keeping this unfamiliar prayer, uh, unfamiliar word in this very familiar prayer. It it, it fits because um, to hallow something is to treat it as sacred, as something special, highly unique, in a category all by itself. To hallow is literally to treat as holy. Holiness, we tend to think, refers to moral goodness and purity, but that's not really what it means. Holiness specifically speaks about being set apart, being separated from something else, being distinct. Um, One important Old Testament example of making something holy is the fourth commandment. The Lord gives this to His people. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. He could have said, uh, to use this word we're talking about, hallow the Sabbath. Set it apart. There are six days. This one's different. There are six days on which to, to do your work, to accomplish your chores, to clean the house, to do your shopping, to transact, to make a living, to pay your bills. Hallow the Sabbath. It's in a category all by itself. Treat it as a special day. So when Jesus teaches His disciples to pray to the Father, hallowed be your name, He's saying that God's name is unlike any other name. Don't treat it the same way you would treat another name of a human being. It's in a category all by itself. Think of His name differently. Treat it as sacred. That's why the third commandment, says, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Or uh, an older translation, do not take the Lord's name in vain. I've always wondered why some people, not all, some people who would consider themselves non-religious, don't affiliate with any religious tradition, might not even believe that God exists, let alone that He's revealed Himself most fully through the person of His Son, Jesus. I've always wondered why some people in that category, um, when they get angry, or, for example, when they hit their thumb with their hammer, choose to use the name of our Savior, Jesus, along with the title of our Savior, Christ, as an expletive. Why not, you know, Bugs Buddy, (laughs) you know, or Bilbo Baggins, or... Anything else, a person who wouldn't be offended that you're invoking their name instead of a four-letter word, instead of some other frustrating phrase. But 
if we look here and there at the Bible, we shouldn't be so surprised. The Apostle James, for example, in chapter 4 says, friendship with the world means enmity with God. You're either for Him or against Him. There's no neutral Switzerland in the middle. There's no gray area, black or white. The Apostle John says this in his first letter, uh, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Same kind of separation, either for or against God. You're either a friend or a foe. You're either a family member or an enemy. There's not, nothing in between. And, and so here, here's what we would say in, in, in drawing these things together. If the Creator designed you perfectly for dependence upon Him, His will be done, but you insist on independence from Him, my will be done, then very naturally you're going to resent God. You're going to see Him as a restriction on your life because if He represents pure holiness and justice, then His Word, the Bible, His Son, Jesus, His church, the people of God who represent these things are going to be reminders that your sin is worthy of judgment and you will resent the King and misuse His name. And so maybe that instinctive debasing use of the name of Jesus makes sense after all. But the people of God, the children of the King, are called to use His name in a completely different way, to hallow it, to call upon Him as Abba Father, with respect, as sacred. Prayer is not about us, but the way we live the way we evidence attitudes show the opposite so often, that we hallow our own names. That's the reality underneath the Genesis 11 account of the people building the Tower of Babel. They were trying to reach to the heavens to become like God, and their motive, the Scriptures tell us, is to make a name for themselves. God stops them dead in their tracks. He says, no, I'm not going to allow this. He scatters the people to the nations. Turn the page, chapter 12. That theme is actually continued. It seems like something completely different, but um, when God calls out of all these pagan nations a nobody named Abram, um, his name will become Abraham, he makes this particular promise among others. If he said to the people of the Tower of Babel, no, 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 you may not make a name for yourselves, that is not going to work. What he says to this pagan nobody named Abram to become the father of his particular people, what God promises is, I will make a name for you. I will make your name great. I will give to you everything that you need, that you desire. A a, a name represents status. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, identity. And what we make of it um, with our sinful desires is we want status, we want approval, we want a sense of um, recognition and praise. So here's a picture of the gospel in a nutshell. Sin always involves hallowing our own names, treating me and my will and my decisions as sacred, as in a category all by itself. Salvation through a right relationship with God involves hallowing His name instead. Um, Hallowed be Thy name. 
We're saying a lot with that phrase. But perhaps some of the most important things that we are saying would start here. God, I want the world to know who you are. I want my family, my friends, my neighbors to the ends of the earth to know your name that is above every name, that is in a category all by itself. I want you to be respected, adored, obeyed, worshipped. I want everyone to know, Acts chapter 4, that there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. His name is Jesus. Hallowed be thy name. Lastly, how not to hallow. Some practical thoughts. The whole idea of hallowing um, provides a good answer to the question, why do we pray? Because when you pray, and when you don't pray, shows what you love, what you truly praise. What, what do I mean by that? When you pray, there's almost always a need, isn't there? There's a crisis, there's a gap, um, there's a problem that requires a solution, there's a dead end and you want divine intervention and so you pray. And very often, aside from those points of need and crisis and dead ends, you and I don't pray nearly enough nearly fervently enough, with, with faith enough. And when we pray in those particular circumstances of need, it's a good sign that that is what we're hallowing in life. Some of those things are good things that we turn ultimate. Our health, our finances, a job, um, whatever we end up praying to God to, to provide a solution to. So very often, it's an indicator of where our hearts are putting too much worth in worship, in praise. But do you ever just pray just because? Do you ever spontaneously adore the King for who He is? Not because of some circumstance, not praise God because you've healed me of this sickness, or praise God, I got this job finally. They, they returned my phone call today. Those are good things. But do we ever pray Him, praise Him just because? That's why we need to read God's Word more. Immerse ourselves in Scripture to, to see and then be overwhelmed by God's compassion and His majesty and His beauty. To see page after page of consistent testimony of who He is and adore Him. Or maybe you see God on a missions trip amongst the poor to whom you're ministering. Maybe you see God granting this grace of contentment when they have so much less than you, so much less than you would ever be content with, and you realize this is a grace of God, and you praise Him. Those are opportunities outside of the circumstances of your own life, outside of the needs of your own life that are met, to praise God simply because. St. Augustine said, we imitate what we adore. And a contemporary philosopher uh, puts it this way, you are what you love. You're shaped by what you set your heart on, what you praise. Uh, his name is Jamie Smith. He quotes an early 20th century French writer named Antoine. I'll let you pronounce his last name. Antoine wrote this um, early 20th century, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work like a blueprint, but rather teach them to long 
for the endless immensity of the seas. He's talking about casting a vision. He's talking about opening our eyes from the mundane, the circumstantial, the specifics, and, and, and seeing grandeur. And if you see the endless immensity of the seas and your heart longs to explore, you'll build a ship, no problem. You'll find the resources. You'll rally the troops. And it, if, if I were to rework that kind of idea and apply it to hallowing, I might say this, if you want to maximize your potential as a human being, which has to involve a relationship with God Himself because He, he created you such in such a way, if you want to live as the Creator intended you to live with maximum joy, with greatest purpose, then don't flip through these pages looking for do's and don'ts. Don't delude yourself into thinking that you can earn His approval, earn that love. Lift up your gaze, praise the King, adore Him for the endless immensity of the perfections of His character, revel in His love for you, adore Him, long for more of Him, delight to worship Him, and then all these things will be added unto you, Jesus says. Seek first His kingdom, gaze upon the face of Christ, everything else will work out. What is it that you adore? What is it that you hallow? Whatever it is, you find it very easy to talk to other people about, maybe more than they'd like. You don't need notes. You don't need to prepare. You just gush. You share. You give examples. You're passionate. It might be fashion. It might be sports. It might be um, cooking. It, it, it might be your beloved dog some good things that perhaps because of the sin of your heart, you turn into ultimate things. And realize as you examine your heart that you train your heart to love something the more you give time and attention and the affections of your heart to it. Some practical examples to walk through. Use these to assess yourselves. If you've taught your heart to crave pornography, then the intimacy of real relationship, real human affection, is going to start feeling foreign, unsatisfying. If you feed your body a drug, and let's use a lowercase d, it could be alcohol, it could be something, um, a hard drug, but it, it could be a shopping high, it could be junk food. The craving demands a satisfaction that's been learned. You've taught it. If a child must have the it toy of the Christmas season, there's always something, right? comes out of nowhere. Who, who decides these things? But if, if your child is devastated on Christmas morning because they've torn through 14 presents and none of them are good enough, it's a sign that, parents, you've had a primary role in teaching your child this pattern of the human heart. They have hallowed this toy. And maybe more importantly, because that child is dreaming about being able to walk back into school after Christmas break and tell everybody that he or she got the it toy when no one else did. It's even more likely than hallowing the toy that the child learned from 
the family context, has hallowed the image of life with that toy. People are going to think I'm awesome. Other kids are going to wonder how in the world you got a hold of that thing. Hallowing. It points to the roots of our hearts. If you couldn't possibly imagine yourself wearing clothes from that given store, or couldn't possibly imagine yourself condescending to drive that kind of car, then you have hallowed a look, a standard, an image, a label, the status that comes from your determination that you would never be caught dead, you fill in the blank, whatever it may be. Some of you put yourself through a punishing set of years, starting from high school, extending through grad school, and um, perhaps one of the main driving motivations that had you saying no to everything else, including God in your life, was that your heart praised the approval of your parents. And sadly, perhaps this was even more powerful, that your heart praised, it valued above all else, not hearing the disapproval of your parents. You hallowed freedom from criticism. You hallowed a little safe space, understandably, in a bit, uh, to, to some extent. You hallowed that little bit of safe space to, to not experience the devastation of parental disapproval. The only way you can be freed from the trap of adding your own unhealthy dysfunction and your own unique sin patterns to the sin of your parents with these crushing expectations is to, we talked about this last week, to recalibrate your heart to praise above all else God Himself, to hallow Him uniquely, to value His approval, which is unconditionally offered to you and accessed by faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you live in discontent about your body, about what you see in the mirror, about your bank account, your financial status. The the answer is not just to start being content as if the power of positive thinking can reverse everything, to stop worrying, to appreciate how much more you have than other people. Some of those can become trite pieces of counsel. Sometimes they help because the root problem is not just you need to think differently. The root problem is that you're hallowing an ideal of beauty. Faces and bodies in a magazine. You're hallowing the picture of life that the ad manipulates you into thinking will make you happy and stimulates in you a craving for that life and everything that will come with it. The only way to free yourself from such loves is to crowd it out to displace it, to push it aside with a more powerful, greater, purer love, to praise above all else God Himself and every promise that He has made to His people, to hallow Him uniquely in song, in prayer, in spontaneous praise that He is supreme above everything, which then begins to put everything in its less important, proper place. Job, health, friendship, those are good things, but they they get slotted appropriately. They're no longer ultimate. They're good things to be enjoyed in their time and in their manner. And then your bank account, 
your balance, how you look in that dress, whether or not your life at all looks like Madison Ave or Hollywood begins to fade, and some of that stuff, when you truly begin to hallow God, you realize is silly and childish, childish and worthless. Last ironic application. Maybe you consider yourself a prayer warrior. You're a person at every prayer meeting. People know you as a praying person, and yet your prayerfulness exists because you're hallowing someone or some circumstance and treating prayer as a means of getting what you want. The reason you're always on your knees, the reason you're always sending out prayer requests is because you want this situation to come about. It's petition without praise. It's getting your needs satisfied, and prayer is the mechanism that you utilize. Wrongly directed hallowing is nothing less than the sin of idolatry, worshiping something or someone in the place of God. Hallowed be thy name, Jesus says. Start there. If sin is singing out of tune because it's not according to the design of our Creator, then one author puts it this way, praise the melody of adoration is exactly what our hearts need to do. Uh, Last thought, Derek Kidner wrote a commentary on the Psalms, and in his description of the end of the book, he writes this, five joyous psalms of praise, each of them beginning and ending with hallelujah, bring the Psalter to a close, 150 psalms. So in this respect, as in many others, the psalms are a miniature of our story as a whole, which will end in unbroken blessing and delight. We earlier sung, we will feast in the house of Zion. It's a pointer to the last day, to the end of history when all of the redeemed of Christ will gather and celebrate at the wedding feast of the Lamb, we will feast in the house of Zion. There will be unbroken blessing and delight. And hallowed be thy name, says people of God, begin to taste that now by recalibrating your hearts to praise, to value, to treat as sacred God alone and not stuff not even other people whom you love, that your heart might be oriented on that which will satisfy you on the last day, all provided through the sacrifice of Jesus the Son. Let's pray. Lord God, you alone are to be hallowed. Give us spirit eyes to see how we fall short right there. Give us spirit strength to turn our heart's gaze from whatever we've put in your place, to renounce it, to put it aside, to to treat it and enjoy it in its proper um, place, in its proper orientation in our lives. But to see you as the one in a category all by yourself, the one who alone deserves praise. And Father, thank you that Jesus taught us to pray. We pray that prayer using His words as one voice. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.